And welcome to another edition of the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Arr. Yeah, we're coming at you. Yep. Hey, we're day late, dollar short, but hey, nothing that you wouldn't expect from. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, we're the gaming podcast that even George Lucas wouldn't re edit. Yep. We're just, <laughs> he'd leave us alone. And shop first. Hey, I like I like the special editions for the most part. I mean, yeah. But yeah, he he wouldn't he wouldn't touch this with a ten foot pole and ten billion dollars. Yeah, yeah just, just just leave it, just leave it. Yeah, it's, I, it. Not because it can't be improved, uh, but because it may not be worth that level no, of commitment. No. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but our virtue is self honesty. That's so. true. So hey, it's another week, and uh, hope it finds you in good. Fit and fine fettle, all that and more. Hopefully, you've been having some uh, time to get it together on gaming, whether you have small groups face to face or in uh, interspace, the interwebs. Oh, yeah, making nebula. use of the uh, many, many facets of the internet that make it so much more possible to game than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing a lot of companies now starting to uh, really cater to that. Obviously, it, it's in their best interest. Yeah, uh, developing a working relationship with hosting sites that allow you know, yeah, conference-style no. gatherings uh, is and, in every game company's favor. And making their uh, products more digitally friendly so you can use those game spaces and uh, streaming services and face-to-face meeting services a little bit more easily with their products. So that's kind of cool. Gaming, wherever internet is available, you got it. And internet, not that hard to find, thank you, cell phones. Yeah, so, you know, here it is. It's Thursday. It's actually a nice day up in here. It's uh, Gorgeous. Blue skies, cool breezes. Oh, yeah, like David Lynch. Golden sunshine and beautiful blue skies. Yeah. Lovely cornfield by the side of the road. What is that, a human ear? No, no. <laughs> no, if you haven't checked out David Lynch's uh, page, he does a good morning every day for this whole quarantine. It's, it's good stuff. Just uh, 30 seconds of him just uh, talking about the weather in L.A. and those beautiful blue skies and golden sunshine. What? No, no side cuts to Dennis Hopper laughing hysterically? Well, no, no. No, there's a few surreal moments no, here. Kyle now. McLaughlin looking no, slightly no, confused. It's just him. It's horrified. Just him. No? Okay. It's just him. Well, all right. I, I, good for him for doing it. I think that's a nice gesture, but I, I feel like he could really spice things up a little bit. Oh, he does. He does. Every once in a while, he'll... Let's just put it this way. You, um, if you ever... Uh, if you appreciate David Lynch as a director or filmmaker or... A storyteller. You, you can see why. Okay. Very terms. But, I'll actually uh, look that up. Yeah. And uh, while you're at it, sack squatch. And, uh, yes. Exactly like it sounds. That is not an accidental mispronunciation. It is sax squatch. Uh, mm. <laughs> the hero America needed. Yeah. Out of nowhere he came. And, you know, we spent all this time looking for him. Only to realize that he was finding himself. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why we were all looking for Bigfoot. We are all looking for Sasquatch. But no, now he has found himself through the healing power of jazz. Yeah. You know, say what you want. 
Listen, enjoy, you won't be sorry. Yeah, look it up. <laughs> no, a couple of other tidbits before we uh, launch yeah. out of the preamble thing. Uh, uh, number one, uh, it was uh, we posted it online, but totally worth a mention during the show. The Dead Milkmen, legendary punks of the 1980s, are preparing they are. a D&D module. Yeah, I never would have expected this promo in a thousand different variations in the Matrix, but here we are. It is a thing that totally should have been, and it's kind of amazing to me that I have not used this pun before. I should have. It should have occurred to me in all these years for us to encounter a chimera and refer to it as a bitchin' chimera. Or in this case, the lost tomb of the... Bitchin' Chimera. I saw this, and it's just like a little piece of my heart blossomed. Yeah, I had to do a double take. Is this an onion? Yeah, I mean, you know, are they just messing with me? Because this is too good to actually be true. No, it is not too good to actually be true. It is, in fact, true. So the, the dead milkmen of punk fame are making a D&D module. Lost to yep, the and the proceeds are going to a uh, Philadelphia PA LGBTQ charity. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but that's also another great thing is all the proceeds are going right to charity. So Yeah. This is just them being them, man. <laughs> For all the people, I, I remember having a uh, little bit of a drag down on uh, Twitter. Another gamer said that uh, he thought the Dead Milkman were overrated, and I'm like, Oh, if anything, underrated. Yeah. Uh, he's like, yeah, I think that they're not as good as people make them out to be. And I'm like, what, are you talking about songs like Take Me to the Therapist, Stuart? Oh, yeah. Stuart is still to this day. My, my Dancing in a dioxin dump. and uh, <laughs> You'll dance to anything. Watching uh, Scotty die. I mean, there's some substance there. Sure, there's a lot of lighthearted silliness, but there's also a lot of... Let's put it this way. It's the thing about the proto-punk or the post-punk... Uh, revolution that was going on at that time. There were so many people being so incredibly serious and it was the hallmark of the Dead Milkmen that at no point did they take themselves in any way as seriously as other people took their bands. Uh, they they never... And they had no pretense about it. They They never... Yeah, we're totally like, you know, the very serious. No, other than showing up, making good music, having a good time, and laughing, uh, they really had no other goals, uh, and that's part of what made them an endearing uh, act. They they drew a lot of hardened fans, including myself, because like they were the epitome of not giving a rat's butt. True, but they were also their hearts were in the right place, and you definitely oh, very knew. Much. Nice guys. You definitely knew that they were uh, where they stood. Um, I remember the infamous skinhead incident. Um, also, they were not very fond of the frat boys that tried to try to hang out around them, and they quickly clowned them to leaving. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, if you were look that insouciante attitude. Uh, did draw in some people that, you know, may not have been fans of uh, other parts of the, the punk genre. Uh, but, all right, punk rock girl, 
uh, obviously, you know, their one moment of major airplay and video spin. Uh, but lots of little snippets of what it was like to be alive in the 80s and be kind of dumbstruck by the culture that you live in, the, the toxicity of it in some ways, the, the vapidness, the... The Bleach Boys, yeah, baby. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's go drink it with the Bleach Boys, baby. Oh. <laughs> um, or Sri Lanka Sex Hotel. And no one will ever make a song about Nitro Vernon funny, funny cars. cars. And yet here we are. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a soft spot for uh, Dead Milkman. You may Taco not. Taco Land! No, oh, we don't oh, talk. Rocket Ship. I know, Rocket Ship. One of Jelly, my personal favorites. Jellyfish Heaven. <laughs> yeah, my favorite one was Rocket Ship. I got a lot of clowning for that. I'm like, you like this? I don't know. It just speaks so much to my inner child, you know? But, I, yeah, it's fun. I, I know that it's a very unfamiliar thing to a lot of people. Yeah, but, apparently <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh, Rocket Ship was great. But it, it was just wonderful to see that, you know, they've, they've taken their COVID time off since we're not doing live gigs. Here they are doing a thing for charity which I, I think is just outstanding. Uh, and with their usual tongue-in-cheek sense of humor. Yep. Still intact. For so it's, it's nice later. to know that they were one of us after all. Yeah. You know, that's that's some crazy stuff. But, yeah, there's also a couple of cons going on, Reaper cons going on. Ah. And today I just got a notification right now on the phone. Good thing we got things turned off. Really? Yeah. Reaper con. Good for them. Yeah, we got our... My wife and I got our... Um, ReaperCon loot box. Oh, probably. In the mail this morning, so. Uh-uh. And the yeah. other tidbit that uh, in our preamble, uh, not to burn too much time and material, but totally worth mentioning, Kickstarter for Twilight 2000. Uh, oh, yeah. Mark Miller is coming back on board, of course. Pink. Far Future Enterprises, Mark Miller, the, the mind behind Game Designers Workshop. Uh, and with a full assortment and crew of extremely professional, you know, well-accredited oh, yeah. game designers and uh, research people. So, yeah, this is shaping up to look like it's going to be a nice investment. Uh, yeah, Mark Miller, also Traveler fame. Um, and, of course, Bray Chadwick, uh, no longer with us, but, yeah, you know, um, he's there in spirit. So, ni nice to see how that one's going to turn out. I do like the art. I, I did like the art of the M1-3 turning up uh, the Eastern European woodlands in the snow. That was yeah. that was a nice little picture, and I'm like, you know what? I, I got my eye on this one. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of thinking like, uh, you know, uh, Mad Max it played from the military point of view. And, yeah, it gets horrific. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, look that one up yourselves. Uh, those who are not familiar with Twilight 2000, it was a near-future, like, post-apocalyptic fiction, and... Uh, Featured American troops, or presumably American or European troops, uh, working their way out of Eastern Europe back towards Allied lands through uh, occupied or conflicted territory. Uh, in some cases, with areas of you know extreme damage, including nuclear or you know biohazard-based uh, <laughs> uh, obstacles. So, you know, finding a patchwork quilt of uh, Loose confederations of post-Soviet alliances that have fallen apart, and now they're left to their own devices yeah, because everybody's scrambling uh, for supplies. 
Uh, the pre, maybe we'll do a recap. Uh, one of my favorite supplements is the Free City of Krakow and the Last Sub Home. That Classic. Was a, or the Last Sub and uh, the Last Ship Home. And the Last Sub is uh, completely different. But all right, we're going to turn to Joe Richter called in. So we're going to turn it over to him and we'll be right back. Hello, Joe. What's up, guys, dude? That was awesome. I've never played Curse of the Crimson Throne, but you know me. I love Pathfinder. Uh, I'm actually running a Pathfinder West Marches game right now set in near Mathis, uh, dealing with the, you know, the near Mathis and Malthuni War, right, um, <clears throat> right where Iron Fang Invasion takes place. And I've set it a year before Iron Fang, and in my grand scheme that will never come to fruition, I want to run this game for like a year in-game time and then lead it into iron fang invasion and iron fang invasion has one of those cool little subsystems that you guys were talking about they have like the troop mechanic and recruiting like organizations and spies and shit it's pretty cool i've just been reading about it anyway great stuff peace out all right joe thanks uh yeah glad to hear you're doing some good stuff in pathfinder uh yeah up there by the iron fang invasion um Iron Fang Invasion, Iron Fang Invasion. I got a um, got a supplement, Lands of War, I think it's called. I haven't really cracked the cover on that one. I mean, I glanced over it and uh, read a couple parts that I liked. I'm going to probably start on the Iron Fang Invasion myself sometime soon. So that would be awesome if you got a year of play in before you drop that on your players. So, Arr. yeah, let us know how that goes. And uh, glad you're enjoying things. And uh, speaking of enjoying things, uh, we talked a little bit about things that we're enjoying and uh, coming up here. But uh, we're continuing on with the summer camp. Yeah, I know it's uh, summer starting to wane down. It's uh, Labor Day coming up here. So, again, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah, we are winding down on summer camp. But uh, it has been fun because, I mean, there are just key classic modules that are terrific wellsprings of uh, information and experience on like how the early game was played and terrific ideas in any time uh, to play the game yeah. today. It's kind of like what's old is new again. And so that's a big thing that we wanted to talk about and cover throughout this whole series. And, uh, well, you know, things just aren't working out the way we want them to, but we're making do with what we got. So yeah. we're glad you're uh, enjoying this, everybody. And, uh, of course, uh, please let us know. Oh, it's great to be back. Huh. Yeah, it's great to, even if we're going once a week, I think uh, we're having a lot of fun doing it. So we're going to tear right into it. Last week we talked about Curse of the Crimson Throne. Um, yeah, not a lot of people, like Joe said, didn't play it a lot, but uh, at the same time, it wasn't... You know, it's one of those modules that I think a lot of people remember. And uh, we wanted to make a big deal about it because we talked about it. it had story and plot. And, of course, there's so much going on in there, it's hard to encapsulate it all. And we did the best job we could. But I really like uh, this next one, which kind of we're going to do a head-to-head -head on this. And uh, it may seem a little unfair, but uh, we'll deal with that in a minute. Tonight we're... Or tonight? Is it? It's not tonight. No, I misspoke. It's today. We're going to cover... Oh, Dungeon Module B3, Palace of the Silver Princess. Both the early, original, <coughs> banned first yeah. edition and the more well-known 1981 re-release. 
which has become kind of the benchmark by default because right. the earlier edition is so very, very hard to find. Well, it was until Wizards of the Coast, but we'll deal with that in a minute. Yeah, yes. We're dealing with the green cover, uh, and that's what we're going to cover tonight, but we will mention the orange cover, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, that will be your cue if we mention, okay, this is a core difference between the orange cover and the green cover. That will be your cue that we're switching from one edition to the next. Yeah, so we're just going to cover B3. We're just going to open this up and uh, put this out there, and then we're going to talk about some of the post history. Now, this is by Tom Moldovay and Gene Wells, and uh, Gene Wells is prominent in this as well because, well, 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 Gene Wells, um, she was one of the first uh, ladies at TSR to get her own module, and uh, Tom Moldovay and her, uh, they ended up uh, doing this one, which was a rewrite of the original orange cover. So this one, uh, Palace of Silver Princess, it's, uh, here we go with this whole story thing. Um, yeah, all right, that rears its ugly head once again. I know that, you know, it, it is a matter of uh, some people professing one thing uh, and others professing another. Uh, we're actually just going to let the material speak for itself once again. Uh, with Palace of the Silver Princess, the third release of the B-Series for the basic set. Now, this one, too, is an uh, introductory module for characters between first and third level. And it, once again, in its introduction and in its DM section uh, notes, it spells out, first, the backstory for the region which involves a powerful magical gem that is holding a great evil at bay. Uh, and it can be used to unlock a portal that will allow that powerful evil, Arik, back into the world. Now, it is the player's responsibility to show up, realize that this is a region, uh, and between the two different releases, the Names of the region differ, but in this second green version, it is referred to as the small kingdom of Haven. Haven, yeah, which uh, goes into the known world. It's more written into Moldvay's, and here you pretty much see Moldvay's hand. Yeah, this is this. where you know, like he he blended it back into uh, familiar basic edition, uh, you know, uh, Ilarum Galantry. Yeah, the uh, the, the known world was was called then. It was a setting. Yeah, and it, it moves it back into that setting. Now, the destruction of the ruby can be accomplished by three different methods revealed to the DM, and then it is up to the players to determine which of these methods, you know, will it be struck by the particular magic sword, will it be destroyed by the breath of a dragon, or will it be destroyed by uh, notes from a harp wielded by a powerful bard that is of fey origin. Now... All of these possibilities are equally valid, and it's up to the players to A, acquire the gem, and then B, uh, acquire the means to subject it to one of those three fates. This will prevent the eventual arrival of some terrible evil, and most importantly, break the hold of the kind of negative magic that is starting to wither the crops and creatures of the small kingdom of Haven. So... Very easy. Now, in the older module, considerable exterior 
uh, guides replaced. Yeah, let's let, let, let's leave that for an after view. Let's go with this one now. We're going yeah. to all right. Let's let's launch right yeah. into the first. Uh, the Programmed Adventure Part 2, The Gatehouse, which is the entry level that eventually leads to the actual dungeon. Now, this is for first to third level characters. And again, like so many of these, uh, it spends a lot of time preparing the novice DM for what you should describe, what you shouldn't describe. And in fact... It specifies in the first section for the gatehouse that the DM hands the players options. Will you choose A or B or C? This is very introductory level. And <laughs> it then further specifies that only the gatehouse section should be done this way. That after the gatehouse section, players who have had a chance to experience making decisions should then be allowed to come up with their own without being given hints by the DM. Yeah, this is more akin to the first part is a pick-a-path kind of adventure. Um, with, obviously played with a group, where, you know, there's just choices given, and then it's meant to be a teaching object, which, I mean, it's great from the standpoint of that's what you want to do to teach new people. But it does limit your movement a little bit if the players want to think outside of the box you know and, and do something not in the text or part of the entry area or the uh keyed notes you might have a little bit of more of a problem especially if you're a uh earlier early stage dm and i imagine that that probably led to some frustrations with people well you know i just wanted to do this and it's not allowed so yeah i can't do it but you know so be it that's Kind of the where the uh, chips fall where they may, or dice fall where they may. Yes. Uh, and uh, some I, of them were even screaming while they fell. But I think uh, a more experienced DM can just run it as is and just let the turn the players loose, and you know, uh, everything will be just fine. You probably wouldn't know any difference if uh, unless you were speaking directly as an author uh, as a programmed adventure. So. But yeah, once you're on the adventure, there is a nice story that goes through here that uh, there, the Eye of Arak is a powerful gem that keeps a magic item near artifact. And it uh, does get included later in uh, the Dungeons & Dragons lore as uh, part of the Immortals. Uh, set it here to keep another Immortal at bay. Yes. Ah, hey. <laughs> now, uh, there is someone in opposition to the evil Arik, who is trapped in some other dimension, right. held at bay by the power of this gem that could theoretically be used to release him from that prison. Uh, the, the ruby is called the Eye of Arik, or uh, My Lady's Heart by the people of Haven. Uh, <laughs> they do not realize, for the most part, uh, most of them have no idea that it is such a powerful thing that is at the source of the diminishment of their kingdom. Right. Uh, learning this will be a part of the player's trials. Uh, now, there are others already prepared. A mysterious stranger in black armor, uh, a warrior known as Ellis the Strong, uh, a knight of the white drakes, a special band of fighters who ride white dragons and are dedicated to defeating evil wherever it may exist. Now, despite the fearsome appearance, this is actually a good and noble warrior. Uh, 
And in spite of riding a white dragon, uh, he is a hero and is completely capable and dedicated to destroying the Eye of Arik and yeah. any other items that would permit Arik to be released Ellis back is in the strong. You know, his armor started out white, but with all the dirty work he had to do, you know, fighting <laughs> evil... Well, you know, there was a rough patch in between where he was just Ellis the Beige. Yeah. You know, then he drifted down to Ellis the Taupe. Yeah, after a while, fine, Ellis the Black. No, point being, there are other things going on outside the player characters. People with agendas that will potentially collide with the player characters but will also bring them knowledge and or awareness of what they can do to bring about the end plot goal, which is to destroy the Eye of Arik. And, you know, that success will reverse the sicknesses that have been plaguing the the region. Now, the gatehouse section, the programmed adventure, uh, it's incredibly easy. It is a great deal. Like Randy mentioned, it's a great deal like a -a pick-a-path. Right. Uh, with all of the options spelled out for you, until you move into the next section. You get out of the, you know, like uh, giant rats and like... Uh, skellymans. Yeah, a few skellymans, you know. And it does actually take time out to explain turning. Yeah. Uh, because that might be new to players. Yep, yeah, you know, explaining special abilities, lifting and uh, portacluses, bending bars and all that stuff. Indeed. But, but uh, yeah, you get really... Uh, like I said, that first one, I think a, a, a more skilled DM can just dispose of that. And just you know, read the map and just let the, turn the players loose. Like, hey, here you go. Yeah, throw in. But a few. it's it's a nice nod for everybody who detracts from it. It's a nice nod, understanding at the early days, this was with the red box, not the uh, blue box D and D. This was uh, more a little bit more inclusive to being understanding that people who had no idea how to run a role playing game or what the role of a dungeon master is. This is a good way to put them in there because the pick a path stuff was pretty, is pretty popular with explaining people like you can go left, you can go right, you can go straight ahead, or you can door. What door? I, I didn't know door was an option. Can I do door anytime? No, you can only do door when there's a door. Oh, okay, then I do door. All I, right. I pick up ye flask. I can't figure out what. Yeah, I yeah. Can't. It won't let me pick up ye flask. No matter how many times I type it, it says you cannot get ye flask. Oh. So you just have to wonder why you can't. No. So, <laughs> oh, thank we you, watch too much Homestar Runners. Yeah. So. Thank you, Strong Bad. No. That moves you to part three, the actual dungeon proper, dungeon level one. Uh, complete with wandering monsters, including oculate, clerics, bandits, uh, black bear. Uh, and just a, <laughs> He just wandered in, you Random know. Random bear. Because <laughs> bear. Why not? Kobold, orc, or skeleton, you know, and or skeleton intended to be in large quantities. Uh, yeah, so you got your usual list of wandering uh, creeps, you know, wandering damage table is it's often referred to. Here, just take some wandering damage for no reason. Okay. Yeah, very, very few uh, large scale creatures here. It's just a random six sided die wandering monster table, uh, and then like you know die six, die eight, or die twelve of Uh, however many creatures. Fairly simple. Now, moving into the actual dungeon proper, uh, the characters start meeting a wider variety, uh, very appropriate for first and or second level 
characters. If you've got four or five people at the table, uh, you know, kobolds, goblins, uh, spitting cobra, uh, an ape, hobgoblins, sturges, and as you're moving through these, there are room descriptions that are fairly specific uh, to the plot of the story. Uh, the pink pedestal, uh, five feet tall, any light entering the room will gleam off of a small metal object atop the pedestal. The object is silver in color. Other than the pedestal, the room seems to be empty. Ah, yes, the great shiny object. Well, and, you know, in the midst of the glow, you see the face of a transparent green man, you know, when somebody gets within one foot of the pedestal, and the protector. Now, this is DM Ex Deus Machina, where the protector appears and bestows information that the party needs. Uh, And there is a silver pendant that belongs to an alchemist. Uh, Now... These tidbits eventually link together, you know, room by room, uh, chunk of information by chunk of information, including uh, quaint riddles. Yeah. And also include clues regarding the three techniques to destroy the Eye of Arc. Uh, so not a surprise. The, the tools have been placed there to give the players multiple ways to come to a conclusion about how to end this crisis and end this threat. Uh, again, a lot of classic items, you like the, the almost archetypical D&D stuff that we think of as a little cliched today, shows up the uh, giant ferrets, uh, oozing green slime. You know, oh, the, yeah, you can't have a dungeon like some green slime. I'm sorry, we're going to have to close this area of the dungeon down. I'm afraid it's infested with green slime. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, hey, that's just obvious. Yeah, Matt, you... The ambience of the dungeon. I mean, you know, it just, it, it, it adds an extra, you know, 20000 right to the bidding price right there. Yeah. I, green slime. That, that's a selling point. You know. Because <laughs> that hallway is closed for business. Uh, until somebody burns it clean. Yeah. No, uh... I got to say, deep down inside, the affection I have for this module, uh, which I did not own early on. Uh, This is one that I encountered much later in life, got to work with a copy of it, but never owned one of my own until comparatively recently. Oh, you never had a copy of this? No. No, no, I saw this one in stores. A friend who had it got to read it, but didn't own it. This was not in my private collection until this year. Oh. So I, I was thrilled to get a hold of it. Yeah, I had it when I was pretty young. But, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, this one came out in 81. Oh, yeah. I, like, I went and bought most of the B stuff. Yeah. At the time. And that's just it. Is I was very fond of the B and X series stuff. Yeah. Because those were, I mean, I was working with the basic and expert edition sets. Uh and then shortly after that, I entered the workaday world as a teenager, and I suddenly had pocket money. Uh, and at that point, some of the more advanced level stuff was within my reach. Uh, once we started gaming regularly as a group, man, uh, my, my purchase habits took off. Uh, but as they move deeper into the second part of the dungeon, more information is revealed. The challenges and the nature of the challenges gets steeper. 
the number of secrets revealed rapidly increases, uh, greatly enhancing the likelihood that even one clever player amidst the group will put together the puzzle. Uh, they have not made this incredibly hard. Uh, <laughs> and rightly so. <clears throat> but yellow mold, more apes, orcs, uh, cave locusts, uh, and a few brand new monsters uh, enter the lexicon in this. Uh, there's a gardeny area where the archer bush and the vampire roses <clears throat> uh, appear, as well as the decapus, which is a creature usually found in forests, looking like a looked like bloated hairy globes sprouting ten tentacles and haunting forests. Uh, they are greenish. The mouth of the decapus is terrible to behold. It's very wide and has long yellow teeth and a horrible foul breath. Yeah, you can see it on the cover. Yeah, it is displayed prominently on the cover of the module. And it was a creature written precisely for this exact adventure. Uh, and <laughs> uh, the second level of the dungeon uh, leads the characters into final conflict uh, and puts them in the awkward position of first finding a couple of unaffiliated thieves uh, who are fairly charming, uh, Candela and Duchess. And then further encountering a doppelganger without their knowing it. And it is well within the DM's yep. rights to use... Uh, it, it, there, it, it specifically instructs the DM on how to make use of the doppelganger uh, to kill in secrecy, replace the player character, and move through the party one by one. <laughs> uh, so that that is a little harsh note. Okay, yeah, it, it tells you something about the savagery of early D and uh, Trust nothing. Trust no one. Um, yeah, yeah, don't listen to the DM. He's lying. Um, <laughs> the DM may indeed be your you know co-player. But the DM is not your friend. <laughs> yeah, fun fact, uh, Duchess still survives in my uh, Skull and Shackles game. Yes, a little homage inside the game. Uh, she ended up in uh, one of our campaigns sticking around for quite a while and uh, ended up being a well-motivated, uh, self-motivated NPC. Uh, sticking around with the player characters for Want of Adventure and More Loot, where Candela unfortunately bit the farm real estate in the middle of our campaign, so. But yeah, she made it all the way through. Ah, Well, uh, the final areas include the summoning room, where an evil cleric in the service of oh. that terrible power... Arik. Yes, uh, is <laughs> uh, interrupted by the players and ultimately, one hopes, defeated. Uh, but he calls for aid from orcish guards and a werewolf... Uh, that is in his service. Now, <laughs> post-final battle, uh, you know, they'll finally get to uh, take their time returning to the Princess of Haven's uh, courtroom, uh, the heart of the palace, and hopefully at this point they've got the information. You know, one would expect that they would have acquired the information on on how to use what they have acquired uh, and free the kingdom from the curse. Yeah, and the curse is the, basically that the whole point of Haven is frozen 
in time by a strange red light. And the only place seemingly unaffected by this is the royal palace, the palace of the Silver Princess, the Tidular Adventure. Name drop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> Not uh, subtle. Brian Tenold. Yeah, that... Uh, and so, you know, you go through there and you finally defeat him and then you free it and then the gem, the Eye of Arik is banished by whatever the three beings are. And so, it, while it's a simple plot, it is convoluted and it takes a bit of work to come through. It's not presented all at once in a shotgun fashion. like Kind of like with B1 in Search of the Unknown where you've got to go through and you've got to find various things and piece together for yourself what the plot is and or maybe what had happened. But in this one... Um, there's a bit of a controversy about uh, the Palace of the Silver Princess, and we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. Um, yeah, we're going to move into stage two here. But it, the B3 is, is for me, uh, a nice module. It has a lot of story, and it has an atmosphere. Uh, Black Knight riding a white dragon, like, what, what? Uh, well, and you know, turn yeah, your an evil tainting the land, and a you know place trapped in time almost. Uh, you're looking at the prelude that, I mean, if you're looking at where did people get the idea for Ravenloft, okay, those core concepts were already there, okay, that, that right. was not a new trope, uh, it just Ravenloft was the much more fully fleshed out full campaign setting with a vampire villain expertly done. Uh, this, on the other hand, is, you know, a little bit older, but uh, a little more light-hearted, traditional, uh, high-fantasy RPG. Yeah, and it's definitely a good... Look, it's a good jumping-off point versus the standard dungeon crawls at that time because you had to get there. But uh, to this place, and you know, as the original green module shows, it's a pretty set-piece adventure, and it works well to introduce new players and gets people a good taste of what can be done with D&D. However, uh, the orange version, which for years has been has swirls around controversy, was written by Jean Wells. And uh, she was with the editor uh, just working on the Palace of the Silver Princess. And she was working with a very large bestiary, which only a few, I think, the Archer Bush and the. The Decapus, the Archer the, Bush, and the Vampire Roses were the only survivors of the post edit. Yeah, and. Um, the ventures are so different from one another, it's almost jarring. In the original uh, Palace of the Silver Princess by Jean Wells, she has a huge uh, wilderness area in a map. Of course, it's not hexed out, but uh, it's mentioned that you shouldn't be running this until exploring around. But you, uh, there are several nations. Uh, Galuvia, a ruthless place filled with terror. The ruler of this chaotic nightmare is Lady Dehimis. And she rules this barony with a firm and unforgiving hand. And, you know, she has these elite male fighters that serve her as her personal bodyguards. And the commanders of her forces are terrifying, Tough chaotic... chaotic women who instill fear by a mere gaze and who uh, fear little save Dehemis and the elite male fighters who serve her as personal bodyguards and paramours. And the Misty Swamp, which has wild magic. Every time he casts a spell, you roll a die. Yeah, wild magic had not yet appeared in D and D. Oh, proper. yeah, it would, but this like, is one of the first appearances in 1980. It is one of the first appearances of an effect that deliberately distorts, augments, or diminishes magic at random. 
So it is one of the great precursor moments where you're looking at something that was eventually going to feature more heavily in the game years, years later. But here it is. Yeah, and so they have other interesting little locales. Uh, Thunder Mountains, Felders, you know, the uh, uh, the Mirror, a uh, little village of halflings and a few elves and dwarves. Uh, now, Moorfowl Mountains. In any case, she's fleshed the area out. For and, further campaigning past the Silver Princess. So yeah. that's a nice touch as well. And in addition, to help get you around, you find the tinker and his daughter. And as Mike says, well, it sounds like the start of a good joke. Well, okay, <laughs> fair enough. But the nice thing I like about this is is that it provides a vehicle for the players to have as a roaming uh, campsite, a uh, place to stay. And the tinker, of course, can uh, is you help them out initially from their your initial encounter. And he helps transport you around the realm which makes for a good uh, plot device to get you moving and for the players to stick around and, and kind of feel safe. Yeah, the, the goal of this in the original Orange Edition was to have somebody who acts like a guide. Yep. Uh, someone who can deliver information on the DM's behalf. This is, you know, like your mouthpiece. Oh, you're headed to so-and-so. Well, you should be wary. I am told that there are, you know, troubles up in those hills. You know, and that gives you a terrific... Uh, person to act both as guide and instigator, you know, deliverer of rumors, uh, assistant in transport, giver of directions. And also a Perfect. safe place to, uh, that you can store some of your valuables and he can help uh, guide you through some of the perils, providing you with many locales and information. So I thought it was a wonderful piece. On, uh, of course, I didn't have the orange set. I could only hear occasionally rumors. Although there was yeah. an orange one, but I've uh, never even seen it in person. Now, like, <coughs> you know, the the green cover. You know, like I have yeah. it now, and I I I only ever saw the green cover years ago. Mm -hmm. I never personally encountered the original orange cover. Yeah, I seen somebody with it and uh, flipped through it. Uh, a guy up and uh, lived north of me uh, had a copy and I was able but I didn't remember much of it and didn't make much of an impression but anyhow uh we're just going to talk about this real quick uh it's a lot different on that first level rather than an introductory like uh pick your path kind of adventure this one is more like b1 where they leave several places intentionally blank with you as the dm being able ostentatiously uh saying you the dm or the dm at that time being able to place traps and tricks and monsters there on treasure and they have a small list for it to help choose if you're kind of stuck. But nonetheless, again, trying to give you a place to put this in the uh, perspective. Now, it's somewhat much the same. The AI of Arik shows up here as well as a couple other monsters. And this is where it starts to get in some trouble. And we're going to go a little bit back and talk about the publication history here. Um, as Gene Wells was the first... Uh, female game author for TSR. This was her outing. She was very yeah. happy to get this going and doing it. But they ended up pulling the plug after Aerolotus had transformed. She had these three-headed monsters that were hermaphrodites with the heads of TSR staffers and management in there. And uh, the artwork was not well received by the upper-ups upper echelon in the management. Uh, they seen it as somewhat mutinous or, uh, if nothing else, uh, kind of just outright anger. And there was also a picture in there where a woman is sort of tied up by her own hair and is being tormented by these uh, dwarves or something. And they said, oh, that was too sexual. But, you know, 
All right. Uh, yeah, this was stuff that was she didn't do. Done by a barely teenage kid, uh, and you know, it doesn't really change the writing of the module. You know, the the Errol Otis art content uh, created a bit of a stir, but I, it wouldn't have merited the heavy re-edit that was done. Yeah, the end result was the entire print run, which is estimated between about five to ten thousand copies, were put in a landfill in Lake Geneva. Um, they even confiscated copies from uh, the uh, staffers at TSR from and, their desks. At and the they, time. they reference in you know uh, some post histories of this that the Satanic Panic was just underway at that time. So they were very sensitive well. to the impression, you know, like. Well, that looks like a satanic occult attacking a woman. Even the impression of it was sufficient. Like, oh, crap, we better torque this. Let's put a lid on this before people lose their crap. Yep, so it was pulled from uh, everybody uh, that they could and tried to bury it and burn it. And they were fairly successful, I suppose, because it went for quite a bit of money at auctions when copies would show up. I've seen uh, some sell for three, four hundred dollars at actual live auctions versus the eBay or Fleabay's. But uh, fun fact that when Minnesota the Coast took it over, they made it a free PDF, cut that market right out. Uh, all the controversy was gone. Here, you want to see what the Palace of Silver Princess was originally yeah. like? Here, no secrets, which I highly approve. You know, it yep. gives us a window into something that I had only been told of and had never personally seen. So. You know, kudos to them. Well done. Yeah, but uh, they took uh, what was left. They completely rewrote it. Uh, some of the plot that is in there uh, still remains, but there's also more uh, highlight on some of the characters. There's a woman running around with uh, a ruby sword. And, of course, that's referenced in the green version as well. But, yes. Uh, she's right. actually a uh, NPC that you have to uh, get her to use the sword. And uh, on this item. Or the Winter Harp. Uh. Yeah, and the Winter Harp's another uh, good one. And, you know, it's very... Here, I'm going to say it. Palace of the Silver Princess is probably, for my money, one of the more out there and outside of the box of what traditional D&D does. For instance, there's no bards in basic D&D, but here we are having a bardic-type character. Yes, as an NPC that is uh, critical to... Uh, potentially critical as one of the choices to destroy the Eye of Arik. Uh, so the the notion is implanted. Now, the first edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons guide had included bards. Yeah. And but they, there was no provision for it in the basic or expert editions, at, you know, in any way at that time. So uh, you, you can see a little, like, uh, cross uh, over of... Concepts, you know, some wonderfully advanced concepts for an introductory module in the basic edition. Yeah, I think it's a crying shame that Gene Wells' version of that wilderness map was not included and developed more. One could only wonder what the known world would have developed in with uh, Galuvia and several of the other places, including the Misty Swamp with its wild magic and unpredictable nature. Supposedly it has a black shiny tower at the center, which all good swamps should have. uh, (laughs) Yeah, it planted a lot of great ideas in the fine tradition followed uh, by Ed Greenwood later, where you would make reference to an area, leave some hints about rumors and things that might be within it, and then just leave it at that. Let the 
let the players and DMs fill in the blanks and come up with the rest on their own. And this early module uh, displays that same technique. Yeah, and there's so notion. much good flavor in there. Even if just with the green one, if you didn't know anything about the orange one, which we were ignorant of for years and years. I still think that, for my money, I agree with some of the reviewers. Uh, I think Jim Bamber and White Dwarf mentioned that Palace of the Silver Princess uh, should replace Keep on the Borderlands in the uh, new uh, Metzner box set because of its ease of introductory and its depth of story. And that's telling to what we're getting at here is that it's easy to look at Keeping the Borderlands today as simply a monster bash. And there's so much more going on, of course, but it's beneath the surface. Palace of the Silver Princess, you don't have to look very hard. There's a story that immerses you right from the get-go and pulls you in. Whatever version you're using, whether it's the orange one or the green one. And, of course, we're just assuming the default green cover here, uh, the little bit more tamer one. But you know what? Uh, for my money, Palace of the Silver Princess is where D&D started for me to really grow up and seem more like there was something you could do even with an episodic. It felt short because, of course, it's an introductory module. It has a, a start. It has an interlude and uh, mid-resolution and a full end. Yeah, and in its second incarnation, Module B3 does not have the, the Module B1-type quality. Uh, you know, a great deal was lost. Uh, Gene Wells' original work, I think, stands as somewhat superior to the Tom Moldvay version uh, as far as being an introduction to campaign play. The praise that I will give to the second version is that it goes to greater focus on training new players on how to play the game uh, and new DMs on how to DM the game. So, you know, that kudos, Mr. Moldvay did a fantastic job. But I, I got to hand it to Gene Wells, the first female author of any Dungeons and Dragons module. Yeah, yes, sir. You know that she was first in, and kudos go to her because she wrote a darn good module in its original form. It's a shame that I never got to see the light of the day just because a couple of illustrations were a little over the top and mocked the uh, brass at TSR, honked them off royally. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of... Uh, I think that really more is what got it pulled. Uh, the I, Bloom Brothers were... Yep. Nobody makes fun of us. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that nobody called Errol Otis into the office, okay? Yeah. <laughs> It was uh, her and Ed Zollers, the, the development team. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the writer and creative, uh, they get called in because somebody didn't like the art that was placed in it uh, by the TSR in-house artist, Errol Otis, uh, who was young and, you know, <laughs> I mean, he was just a kid well, when he was doing yeah, it. Hey, so. he had that one, uh, uh, that Gamma <laughs> World GM's module, or uh, module, GM screen. The Game World GM screen, he has uh, the illustration of the chick wearing a Dead Kennedys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shirt. And I was like, yeah! No, yeah One of us! One of us! One of us! Yeah, sorry. Oh! <laughs> Dead Kennedys. Winnebago Warriors! Talk about punk, man. <laughs> yeah. I used to, my grandpa used to yell at me so much for listening to Dead Kennedys. Yeah, who are you listening to? Shut that crap off. <laughs> well, Jello Biafra is an acquired taste. He, <laughs> it sure is. He is not for everybody, okay? <laughs> I admit that. I, 
Yeah, when people ask, like, how can you listen to that? Like, look, it is an acquired taste. I understand it. And you're like, I feel the same way that other people do. Uh, they, they ask, how can you listen to that punk? How can you listen to Justin Bieber? Yep, okay. You know, you know, I, it, Guilty as it is uh, most pop music. The emotional feeling that I get as I hear it, it is a great deal like being held down helplessly while somebody defecates into your soul. Oh. Okay, it just, it is an extremely unpleasant well, sensation for me. Anyway, uh, back do not, to... Do not like it, but... Back to Errol Otis. Oh. Yeah, he, he did it, and, you know, uh, he soon was let go. Yeah, uh, it was, it was the not start too of, long after that, Mr. Otis stopped Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, so yeah, uh, just some legacy issues here. Just but, uh, yeah, I'm just saying that, like, you'll notice that, like, the chick gets called out on the carpet for doing this, uh, you know, yeah, when it's really her. the art from a dude that created the the trouble. Now that, like, it does actually offends me, it offend me a bit because it's an indication of like how that closed corporate culture was at that moment. That, uh, you know, I know a dude did this, but call in the chick. You know, wow. Yeah, I remember All seeing right. Frank Metzner. The one Jerk I just move, man. You know, do you, if you if you're not happy with the art, call Errol Otis. Well, they said it was too late to change the artwork, but it ended up her losing uh, most of the modules. She worked with Tom Moldvay. It wasn't just like you know he had to take what she wrote and dump the rest. They redid it. And anyway, uh, Frank Metzner said, "I one Gen Con I was at, it sold for three hundred dollars." I'm seeing here that uh, some of the, uh, in 2008, a very fine, slight warp condition one sold for $3,050. Wow. And then one copy signed by Gene Wells sold for $5,860. In 2011, a few copies were still available from out-of-print resellers, it says here, and shrink-wrapped near-mint conditions. These were priced at 1300 to 1500 But again, uh, Wizards of the Coast made it. Uh, free so yeah i mean if you're a super hardcore collector i guess that's what you go for but to me just having a pdf copy and one that i can print on demand is just well and the happy go lucky me openness about it okay? yeah like that's taking a, the mystery away and being very candid about like here's what really happened here is the actual product look at it for yourself and decide i appreciate that enormously i'm glad they put it on pdf uh complete with the original art so that you can see what upset people, uh, and it—I'll be honest—you know, we're now forty years down the road, and this is not nearly so traumatizing as like some people thought in 1980 or 81. Oh, uh, hey, man! You know, I—I go—I'll give it this. It probably at the time was shocking to a lot of people to have uh, hermaphroditic monsters, three-headed hermaphroditic monsters. But you know what? Yeah, kind of three-headed Etten knockoffs that uh, happened to be drawn, they were illustrated with the faces of various upper-level staff at TSR. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you see there's a lot of interesting <laughs> creatures here besides the Capopus and the, uh, you know, they have the ghost, the diger, and uh, giant marble snake. The Barak. Yeah, let's see. And Jupiter bloodsucker. It's a... A vampire plant. That's where the uh, yeah. That's vampire. where the vampire roses came in later. A giant marmoset. What the <laughs> heck? It's got ears that, like a marmoset. Is that like uh, something that a Frank would do? <laughs> Z Frank. Z Frank. Yeah. The giant marmoset. Yes. True yes. facts about, about the, the giant, giant marmoset. marmoset. <laughs> and the ubus. But yep, 
all good stuff. And you know what? Uh, as much as we can say, uh, <clears throat> as much as we can say that you know it's a shame, um, we still got it. So we're not in too bad a shape. But uh, so we're running a little. Uh, yeah, we short. run a little long. We want to take some time and cover this properly. So thanks for sticking around. And of course. Uh, if you've been a listener to this podcast, of course, you can get a hold of us on our Facebook page. You know that well. But if you're new here, you can also download the Anchor app and take that like button. And as it starts to sit down at a chair, just whip it out right from underneath it and hit that subscribe button. And you can get updates to us when we post new episodes. So You can find that subscribe button and insult its clothing and its, uh, you know, general hygiene. I was just going to call it names. Use, yep. Mr. Balin gives me plenty of uh, material to work with. But uh, we want, we hope you enjoyed uh, the show. And of course, have a great Labor Day. And we'll see you next week. Uh, we'll be uh, doing a mashup and we're going to do a little comparison. And uh, we're going to be using the original Palace of the Silver Princess versus the Curse of the Crimson Throne and making some comparisons about the story and execution. Now, of course, uh, we'll deal with that as the time comes. Yeah, but this, this is the, you know, original. Princess based yeah. you know, module. A tale of two princesses. Others that have followed after. You know, there are some distinct similarities that obviously are mythic archetypes that appear in history and in legend and in myth around the world. And those are reflected both in new and old D&D at the same time. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. So we're going to wrap it up here. We hope you enjoyed. And as always, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.